Well, this morning I'd like to uh, start this sermon by posing a question to all of you. What is one area of your life that you'd like to change? No, I'm not asking that because of that email I got from your spouse or from your parents earlier this week. I'm asking that question because it's a question we all need to ask ourselves often. Because we all need to change, don't we? And then, and then let me take that question, how do I need to change, and kind of dig a little bit beneath maybe our knee-jerk reaction to how we'd respond. Because a lot of us would say, I need to change and move from an apartment into a house. Or, man, I'd love to stop being 10 minutes late for work and all those important meetings because it's not looking good on my performance reviews. Those are maybe areas you need to change. I'll, I'll grant you that, you know. But, but let's dig a little bit deeper and say there are areas of what I'll call deep change that we all need in our lives as well. And these things aren't as innocent. We know they're more harmful to ourself in our relationships. They're the things the Bible calls sin. And they often take shape in our attitudes that then manifest themselves in what we do in our actions. We don't like that we do them. Oftentimes we regret that thing that we've done again. But nevertheless, we keep getting into that same rut of behavior. And we say, man, you know what, if I think about it, that really is one area that I need to change as well. There, there are things like anger. The fact that we can't contain our explosive outbursts when things don't go the way we want them to go or when that driver cuts us off when we're speeding down the interstate, whatever it is. It's, um, it's chronic discontentment, the inability to be satisfied with what God has given us. It's a stubborn spirit that refuses any sort of direction, any sort of leadership from our parents or our boss. It's this inability to submit. It's lust and greed and self-centeredness and it's always comparing ourselves to, to, to others and, and deception. So we all need to change. And we, we know we need to change. We get that, right? We don't have to think too hard to think of those two or three things that are unique to, to me that I need to deal with. But what we can't figure out is how to change. And as, as I was writing this sermon this week, it's kind of one of those places where you, you feel that tension we know we need to change, but we don't know how to do it. Because I talk with people every week, and I've experienced this myself, where I know areas of my life that I need to improve upon, um, but, but I just can't seem to get the traction underneath my wheels to move forward. Instead, I'm just spinning my wheels over and over and over again. Some of us, we, we've, we've tried the steps and the programs and the resources. We've been there, done that. Nothing is helping. Others of us have been to counseling office after counseling office, and nothing sticks. Some of us have read one or two or ten of the quarter of a million self-help books that are available on Amazon.com. Uh, but we do the underlining, we take notes in the margins, but we still can't fix that area of our lives that we know we need to address. Now, now hear me on this. Programs and counselors and books these are all good things. I recommend all of these things often. I use some of these things myself. But, but if we're going to change at the truest, deepest levels of who we are, we need something more basic and more fundamental to, to kind of get underneath the surface of our lives and deal with those areas of deep change that if we don't address them, we're just going to keep spiraling downward in that area. So again, we come to the question, how can I change? 
and this is exactly the right question to ask. I'm, I'm encouraged today to tell everyone here that God is about change. We can see people in the Bible that had their lives radically transformed by the gospel of Jesus Christ. And we can see people and meet people, hear their stories, here at Brookside, people that have had their lives radically transformed by the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so that's why I'm excited this morning to share with all of you the solution that some of these people have found and begun to experience in their lives. The thing that we never experience once then we're done, but we need to continue to live in light of this thing I'm about to share. So there's, there's building anticipation for you. Here's, here's the answer that God's word gives for how we change. At its most basic level, along with everything else that might be needed down the road, but at its most basic level, changed lives come from a changed heart. Changed lives come from changed hearts. It's one of those things that, for those of you note-takers out there, write it down at the top of your worship folder because everything else we're talking about this morning is going to relate in some way to that statement. Changed lives come from changed hearts. And this idea, it, it, it confronts how we often think about change. Because when we think about change, we think about, okay, what, uh, what about the external actions of what I do do I need to polish up? What, what willpower do I need to increase in this area to grow with that thing, you know? But this statement that I think we'll, we'll see is straight from God's word says, you know what, at its most fundamental level, change isn't about what you do. It's about what's going on in your heart. And so, so we're going to take all of our time this morning to just explain and unpack that statement. The, the, the place we're going in Scripture first is Proverbs 4.23. So turn with me there if you've got your Bibles. Proverbs 4.23, we're going to start there. And that's going to serve as a launch pad for us, in a sense, to everything else we're going to be talking about this morning. It'll serve as a platform for the, for the couple different branches that, that take shape out of that trunk, which, which basically is a theology of the heart. That's what we're talking about this morning. If changed lives come from a changed heart, the thing we've got to understand is, is our heart. What does the Bible say about our heart? So let's go to Proverbs 4.23. Here's what God's word says. Above all else, guard your heart, for everything you do flows from it. Listen to that again. Above all else, guard your heart, for everything that you do flows from it. Let's take a minute and set this verse in its context because I think the more we appreciate what's going on in the verses around it, the more we'll feel the impact of everything profound and true and rich that this verse is saying. So the book of Proverbs is all about wisdom. The first nine chapters are basically all about celebrating the value of wisdom and then contrasting wisdom with a life of foolishness. Again and again and again, the writer of this book is urging us, saying, there are two ways to live, folks. You can live wisely or you can live foolishly. Live wisely. Is what, the, is what the writer of Proverbs says over and over. And then listen to how he tells us to do it in Proverbs 4, verses 20 to 27. So let me read that immediate context that Proverbs 4.23 is set in. And as I, as I read this, I'll read it in just a second. Listen to how intentional the writer tells us we have to be, with every area of our life, every part of who we are has to be engaged in this project of pursuing wisdom. Uh, so, so, so let me read this, and I'll kind of pause every now and then to point out how every part of us is engaged in this pursuit of wisdom. Proverbs 4.20 says, My son, pay attention to what I say. 
turn your ear to my word. So there we see that, that what we listen to, what we put into us audibly, is important in our pursuit of wisdom. Verse 21, do not let these words um, out of your sight. Keep them within your heart. What we look at is important. Don't let them out of your sight. For they are life to those who find them and health to one's whole body. Above all else, guard your heart. Our heart has to be engaged in this pursuit. For everything you do flows from it. Keep your mouth, what we say, the language we use. Keep your mouth free of perversity. Keep corrupt talk far from your lips. Let your eyes, again, the, uh, our eyes, uh, let them look straight ahead. Fix your gaze directly before you. Give careful thought to the paths of your feet. So there, a whole other part of us is engaged in this pursuit. Where we put ourselves, the things we engage in, give careful thought to the paths of your feet. Be steadfast in all your ways. Don't turn to the right or to the left. Keep your foot from evil. And in the middle of this, in the middle of saying that, you know what? Ears, eyes, mouth, feet, in the middle of every part of us that is engaged in this pursuit of wisdom, what does he say in verse 23? Above all else. So, so yes, your ears and your eyes and your mouth and your feet, they're important. But verse 423, it gets a certain emphasis even in this context. Above all else, guard your heart. Why? Because everything you do flows from it. The centrality of the heart is a truth that we come face to face with in this passage. It's a truth we cannot ignore. But what do we mean by heart? Why is the heart such a big deal? When we use the word heart today, we often think of feelings and emotion. Heart is contrasted with what? Head, the thinking part of us. So, so there's kind of a dichotomy there. There, there. There's a contrast there in the way we often tend to understand it in English. But when the Bible is written, the, the way biblical writers use the word heart, it doesn't just mean feelings. It's not reduced to that. Instead, when the Bible uses the word heart, it's talking about the core of who we are. One author, this guy by the name of Dallas Willard, he says that the heart is, is the executive center of our lives. It's what ultimately directs the actions that we take. And this is exactly how it's being used in Proverbs 4.23. Everything you do flows from it. And even if you're using another translation, you'll see this come out. Come out. For those of you that are using the English Standard Version, one of the other translations that I know some of you use, it says, guard your heart, for from it flow the springs of life. The NIV 1984 says your heart is the wellspring of life. The New Living Translation, just talked to a guy a couple weeks ago who's, who uses that version, is loving it. It says, maybe most clearly, says your heart, listen to this, your heart determines the course of your life. So the heart is central. But the reality is we can't just acknowledge that, kind of mentally nod our head and say, yep, got it, and then change a smooth sailing from there. Because some of us understand the centrality of the heart. But the reality is there's a problem that has to be addressed. Because our hearts aren't only central, our hearts are corrupt. The Bible says our hearts are contaminated. So if the heart is central, but the heart is corrupt, what do you do? Let's let's give the, the Bible a chance to speak for itself. Let's go over to Jeremiah chapter 17, verse 9, where we see this corruption of the heart. God's word says, the heart is deceitful above all things and beyond cure. Who can understand it? Do you see the contrast, the, the, the tension? 
The verse we just looked at, Proverbs 4.23 says, above all else, guard your heart. And here in verse, uh, Jeremiah chapter 17, it says, above all else, your heart is deceitful. So your heart is deceitful above all else, but above all else, guard your heart. What do you do when the thing you're supposed to guard is corrupt? That's a question. There's a tension we should feel as we read through, as we read through Scripture, as, as, we, as we wrestle with change ourselves. Or look at how Jesus himself says it. Flip over to Mark chapter 7, verses 21 to 23. Jesus here is talking to his disciples, helping them understand that our external actions come from an internal core. Listen to what he says here in Mark 7, verses 21 to 23. For it is from within, out of a person's heart, that evil thoughts come. Right there, you know, enough said. It is from within. And then listen to everything that he lists. Sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, greed, malice, deceit, lewdness, envy, slander, arrogance, folly. And the list could go on. All of these evils come from where? All of these evils come from inside and defile a person. So what do we do when the most fundamental part of who we are is contaminated by sin? Too often we focus only on the externals. We get up in the morning, we fall to our knees, and we say, okay, here's my my program for self-change. But we don't depend on God. We focus on the externals and neglect the hard work of heart work, to use a cliche that maybe you've heard, I don't know. Um, It's it's like this. Earlier this week, I was uh, leaving Brookside for a lunch appointment, walk outside of our office area, Two of our facility team gals are out trimming some of our hedges. There's kind of a prickly bush that is right outside of our office area that if you don't trim it, I'm guessing thorns kind of start to uh, jab people if you're not careful. It probably doesn't look the best, stuff like that. So, so here are these two gals out on a ladder with this huge, I mean, it, it makes me proud as a man to see kind of this like nine-foot hedge, I don't know how big it was, but it was a big hedge trimmer, you know. It wasn't just something you can fold up and put in your pocket. They weren't out there with the scissors cutting anything. It was this great hedge trimmer, and they were out trimming this bush. Uh, there was this pile of branches, kind of the, the overgrown branches there beside them. They were probably getting ready to throw them away. They were working on it. Now if you drive by, that thorn bush is contained. It looks exactly like it's supposed to be as part of our landscaping. It looks, looks great. Um, but you know what? Next year, or in a couple years, however long it takes thorn bushes like that to grow, those branches are going to continue to grow back. Maybe in a different way, but they're going to keep growing back, and they're going to keep needing to be trimmed. And so we'll go out there again with the hedge trimmers, prune it, make it look nice, but that thorn bush is always going to be, what? A thorn bush. And too often, we approach life change like landscaping. We get out our hedge trimmer, we notice some of those overgrown branches of our lives, and we start to trim them off. We make it look good, but if we're honest with ourselves, we know that, hey, you know what? Next week, next month, next year, these, these branches are just going to grow out in another way. And so we get the hedge trimmer out again and, and deal with it. We keep doing that, and that is our program for life change. But what do we know? We know that if you want to ever get that thorn bush out from, from our office area, you don't need a hedge trimmer. What do you need? You need a shovel. Brookside, we need to approach life change, not with a hedge trimmer, but with a shovel. We need to dig down to the root, to the heart of the problem, and say, until I get 
that deep, branches are going to keep growing up. The things that need to be changed about us, Brookside, listen to this, because this is, this is important. The things that need to be changed about us aren't just external behaviors. The Bible is clear that at the most basic levels of who we are, we've been impacted by sin and our hearts are corrupt. And this means that we need to absolutely rethink our program for change. It means we don't just plan out how we change and what we do. It means we dig beneath that and get to our heart. And then we, and then we incorporate effort. And then we put the plans and the programs and the resources into place. But the place to start is with your heart. Because the problem runs deeper than externals, the solution has to run deeper than externals. So again, our question, what do we do when the most fundamental part of who we are is contaminated, is corrupt? The answer the Bible gives is that we need a conquest of the heart. So the heart is central, the heart is corrupt, the heart must be conquered. And this is one of those places that I was writing this as I was thinking about some of this stuff. This is where you just... I mean, this is why writing a sermon is so cool, because I get paid to study God's Word, you know? I mean, how awesome is that? But, but this is where you kind of say, even as you're writing a sermon, wow, God engaged my heart at a really cool level, just reminding me of everything that, that God has done for me and that I need to be continuing to depend on Him for. So this is one of those places where it's okay to put down your pen, and, and my prayer even for this, for this next little bit is that this would engage your heart at that same level. But so let's talk about this conquest of our heart that we need to see. And let's go back to Proverbs 4.23. Remember what it says, above all else, guard your heart, for everything you do flows from it. We've talked about the second half of that verse, and now let's back up into the first half of that verse. When we hear the phrase, guard your heart, what comes to your mind? What's the mental picture that you draw up? My guess is if we were sitting down in a coffee shop and we were talking about it, for most of us, when we think of a guard, we think of someone who keeps stuff out right? Uh, we think about guarding our hearts. We think about uh, the, the fences we need to set up around weak spots of our lives. We say, I struggle with this or that or that, so I need a budget or an accountability group or an internet filter or whatever else it might be. We think of, we think of that level of structure, right? And that's good. We need to guard our heart in those ways. But let me also suggest that there's a whole other way we need to think about guarding our heart. Because if you think about it for a little bit longer, you might realize that a guard doesn't only let, or doesn't only keep people out, but a good guard is also supposed to let people in, right? I mean, imagine one of the guards at Buckingham Palace in London where the Queen lives. We think of those guards standing outside the gate, kind of uh, immobile, immovable. We, we think about them keeping the things out that aren't supposed to be in that castle. But I guarantee you, the second the queen pulls up to the castle, the role of that guard changes. And he's no longer intended to keep things out. He needs to step aside and let the queen in. Another illustration. Some of us, hopefully most of us, have seen the best trilogy ever made, Lord of the Rings, or read the books, the best. Um, hopefully a lot of us have seen those Lord of the Rings movies, so, so, so we kind of get the plot in, in the third movie or the third book of that series, The Return of the King, we, we, we meet two guys. One is named Aragorn. 
He, we know, is the true king of Gondor, this, this place where they live. He's the true king of Gondor coming back to, to reign again over his intended kingdom. But he's, but he's not been there. So we, we, we meet this other guy. Denethor is his name. He's the steward of Gondor. But if you recall from the movies, Denethor has forgotten that his role as steward is to maintain the kingdom while the king is away. He's forgotten that, that when a king comes, the right thing for him to do is to step aside and eagerly welcome the new king in. And so, so in the movie or in the book, this guy Denethor kind of makes us mad because in refusing to abdicate his role to the true king, he ends up making things worse instead of better. Brookside, we are, we are that guy Denethor. We are the guardians of our heart, but we are not the king of it. When the king arrives, part of our role as guard of the heart is to step aside and let the king in. It doesn't change our role as guard, but we don't sit on the throne. In it, uh, if you saw a guard sitting on the throne, you'd say, that isn't right. He's misunderstood his role. If we assume that we are on the throne of our lives or that something else should be, we misunderstand our role as steward, as guard of our heart. So as you guard your hearts, remember, diligently keep the bad influences out. Work, to, work towards that. Fight for that. But at the same time, diligently step aside when the king needs to have his role, which is always on the throne of our heart. You see, we are designed to have Jesus reigning in our life. And the only way to, to overcome this corruption in our hearts, the only way to overcome this contamination that we saw from Jeremiah, that we saw from Mark, from the lips of Jesus, is to be given a new heart. To, to have our hearts conquered by the coming king who loved us enough to, to come to earth for us, die in our place so that we might know him. Look at, how, uh, look at how one of the prophets that you might be familiar with, Ezekiel, look at how he, he says we need this new heart. For some of you that have been reading the Bible for a while, you might be familiar with Ezekiel. For others of you, it, it, it's a book you may not be familiar with. It's got some confusing imagery that takes some work to understand. But tucked within this book is one of the most profound, hope-filled prophecies given before the time of Christ that looks forward to everything that God would do in Jesus when he came. So let's go to Ezekiel 36, and let's read this prophecy that talks uh, about, about absolutely the reason we can have excitement that change is possible. So here's Ezekiel 36, verses 26 to 27. God, speaking through Ezekiel, writes, I will give you a new heart, and I will put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. So, so there God's talking about removing a heart of stone, removing this hard, unchanging, unchangeable heart. Say, I'll give you this heart of flesh, this heart that can be molded and shaped to become what it was supposed to be. Then verse 27, here's how we'll do it. I'll put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. So there you have it. We come back to the statement we saw at the beginning, but, but again, we've just been rebuilding toward the statement that now hopefully we can appreciate in some even fuller ways. Changed lives, now that we've seen the problem and the solution, changed lives come from a changed heart. 
and more specifically, changed lives come from a new heart, a heart that has been made new by us turning in faith to Jesus Christ and the work that he has already done for all of us individually on the cross. So, so with, that, with that truth filling our minds and hopefully prompting our worship, let's step to the side for a minute and, and also say we, we've got to consider application. What does this mean for our lives? So, so let's let this rich truth trickle down into some of the ins and outs of our life. First, one thing we've got to do is make sure that we're in place as the guard of our heart. For those areas of our life where we know we need to change, be diligent at keeping the bad influences out. And here's where I need to speak to all of us individually. I can't tell you what that thing or two or three that you just consistently blow it at is. Your, your parents can, or your roommate can, or your spouse can, but, but I can't. There are things that are unique to all of us that we need to be on guard for. I don't need to be on guard against robbing a bank because that's not one of the things that I, every time I drive by a bank, I'm like, hmm, can I throw on a ski mask? Or this is not one of the things that, 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 that kind of draws me in. But I know there are unique things that if I'm not diligent, I'm going to be just that other pastor on the news who blew it. So I need to be diligent in very specific ways that are true to me that I need to guard against. So what are those for you? Look inside yourself but surround yourself with two or three others who can help you do just the same thing. Because if you leave it only to yourself, we can deceive ourselves. Remember Jeremiah, our hearts are deceitful above all things. So this is where we look inside of ourselves, but where we also need those closest to us to say, hey Tim, you know what? Man, uh, I've seen the way you do this. Be careful. And that's where we need to trust the counsel of those who have our interests in mind. Love us. This is why groups are so important. This is why internet filters and budgets and a million other resources are so important. Find out what that thing is for you. Be diligent about guarding your heart. But at the same time, remember that your role is not as king. Remember to let the king, Jesus, have his rightful place on the throne of your life as well. Too many times we narrow the Christian life down to just the things you have to to the things you have to say no to. We think of Christianity as another list of do's and don'ts. But what we've seen today, if Jesus is, is the liberator of our heart like we saw, then Christianity at its heart, if I can use that language, is an affirmation. It's saying yes to Jesus who hasn't come to oppress us or to make our lives smaller. Jesus has come to, to save us to make our lives fuller, to make them what they were supposed to be. It's saying yes to Jesus and this full life that he gives. Some of us here have never made that decision. Let me encourage you today. You can do that before you leave here. You can do that when you're home over lunch. You can do that tonight before you go to bed. It's as simple but as all-encompassing for your life as saying, I'm the guard I need to step inside and let Jesus reign in my life. I need a new heart that Jesus promises to those who come to him in faith. And so in faith, you look to Jesus, to the cross, to the life that he gives, and then you follow Jesus' lead. And it says that that is the miracle, the supernatural work of new life being given to us. You can make that decision right now in your seat and just kind of step aside as the guard of your heart 
let Jesus in. And then if you do that, come, come talk with me or talk with one of the people wearing blue shirts or talk with the person who brought you. We'd love to share more about what that means for, uh, to you. But you can also just talk with the person who, um, who brought you this morning. If you have more questions about that, you can, you can talk to myself after the service. We would love to help you explain this most important decision that you can make. But I also know there are people out here in the congregation this morning that have made that decision to follow Jesus. We did that recently or maybe a long time ago. But I know how easy it is for all of us, for the default mode of our heart, to go back to externals. And so we say, here's what it means to be a Christian. Here's what that means for how I need to look, the face I need to put on. And so we focus on on, on polish. We focus on the branches. And we slowly neglect the, the issues of the heart. And even though our heart has been made new by Jesus, there are still remnants of our old life, the Bible says, that, that, that remain. That if we're not diligent about keeping those out, even at the heart level, bitterness and anger and comparison, a, a, a million things remain and will crop up in our lives. So even as believers, we need to, we need to continue digging down to the heart and say, my heart has been new, but I need to keep trusting God to, to, uh, to purge me of those things that don't honor him, even at the level of my heart. That's the, that's the level we need to dig to. Otherwise, we're just trimming branches when we should be getting the shovel out. So l- let me talk about our second point of application. Second point, thing we can't neglect, we need to pay attention to our actions but never stop with your actions. We've talked around this a bit, so let's, let's deal with it head on. Hear me say, pay attention to your actions. For those of you kids out there that say, I can do whatever I want because it's my heart that matters. That's a misinterpretation of what I'm saying. You know? So hear me clearly. Pay attention to your actions. Actions matter. But don't stop with your actions. Dig down to the level of heart. What condition of the heart is, is giving rise to this particular action in your life? You see, our, our actions are an expression of what's going on in our heart. We need to be concerned with actions and heart. It's not an either or, but a both and. There's this guy. Uh, his, his name was Jonathan Edwards, lived uh, about 300 years ago-ish. And when he was 19 or 20, he wrote these things that are still looked to today by Christians for, for challenge and encouragement and kind of the hoorah part of the Christian life. You, you know, like, let's man up and do it even if you're a woman, you know, let's gear up and get engaged, that sort of thing. These resolutions, he wrote them when he was 19. So, so for those of you that say, I'm just going to postpone life till I'm 25 or 27 or 35 or whatever, look what this guy did when he was 19. Let, let's get engaged at the youngest years of our life. But, but, but listen to what he said in his 24th resolution showing that this guy, Jonathan Edwards, went on to be a great American pastor, a theologian. He got it. He got that we can't just stop with with external, but we need, to, we need to dig down to the level of our hearts. So, so here's what he says in his 24th resolution. We'll be pulling on some old 18th century English here, so kind of gear up for that. Resolved, he says, whenever I do any conspicuously evil action, so whenever I do anything that's noticeably what God doesn't want, to trace it back till I come to the original cause, and then both carefully do so no more, and to fight and pray with all my might against the original of it. 
Leave that up for a second if you would. Just look at that and see how he says, I'm not going to stop with just focusing on my actions, but with all of my might, I'm going to fight and pray to get down to the root of things and say, that's how deep we're going to need to go if we're going to truly let the changed life that Jesus offers us work itself out in our own individual lives. So this morning, we've talked a lot about change, um, but I want to come full circle around to that and, and make sure that the word that is ringing in our ears this morning is one I'm very excited about. This isn't difficult or hard work because, because remember, God is about change. And so I am excited to say the word that should be ringing in our ears is hope. God offers all of us hope for a continually changed life. For some of us, we've seen progress. But we know there are areas we still need to change in. If that's you, there's hope. God will continue working on you. But I am entirely aware that in a congregation this size, some people will be very tired of fighting the changes they need to see in their lives. They'll be discouraged. Some of us will have given up and will say, I don't like that thing I keep doing, but man, I guess that's just who I am. And so we've thrown in the towel and we just concede that thing in our life. We know it creates conflict in us and in others, but we've given up. We just say, I I can't do it. Hear me say this morning that there's hope. Instead of starting off every morning ramping up more, more willpower, we can start off every morning saying, God, continue to change my heart into what it needs to be. Through this new heart that Jesus offers, we, we have hope that significant and lasting change is possible this month, this year, in our lifetime. It takes work, folks, but it's possible. There's hope offered through this new heart that Jesus gives. And then one day, still future, after this long and winding road of godliness that we pursue, one day, for everyone who follows Jesus, we have this hope, this confident assurance that we're going to stand before Jesus, wholly changed, completely perfect, because of what he's done for us. So even if we don't always see it in ourselves, Jesus sees the new heart he offers us, that he's granted us, that he's working out through us. So may God, who alone has the power to grant new and renewed hearts through faith, may he continue to do that work in us and individually and in our midst. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, God, we we depend on you for the new heart that we need. So God, my, my prayer this morning is that you would through your spirit among us and in us, you would, you would give us fresh hope for the change you want to do in us and through us. Jesus, give us the perseverance we need to do to rely on your spirit and then on our effort as, as we work to cooperate with the change that you're working out in us. So, so Jesus, may that change always start with a new heart. But then Jesus, give us a vision for what that should look like in our lives. Jesus, we need you for this. We pray that we're a place that is full of changed people. We pray that we're a place that is, that is full of people that, that are still changing, Father, along that winding road of godliness, Father. But may our goal be fixed. May it be the, the likeness of your Son in us. So, Jesus, we love you. We thank you for loving us first. And we pray these things in your name. Amen.